By the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Welcome to now playing Spartan Scorsese Leonardo DiCaprio Retrospective Series, hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. You swore this was a battle between warriors, so warriors is what I brought. We here at Now Playing will be looking at the Scorsese films starring DiCaprio, including Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, Shutter Island, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Are you with us or not? These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Four deep thinkers. Today, we're talking about The Wolf of Wall Street, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, as well as Jonah Hill, John Bernthal, Kyle Chandler, Margot Robbie, and Jean Duhardine. I'm Stuart in L.A., and no, I have not been smoking crack. I have a little bug in my throat. Sorry about it. Uh, 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 this is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just pulled one off. I, I do it at least two to three times a day. This is Jacob. <laughs> Always in prep for uh, podcasting. Yeah, and a, and a line or two, right? Yeah, there's some yes. good advice in this movie. It's an educational film, I think we're about to review today. People ask how I'm able to do so much podcasting. This movie has all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> this is also the fifth chapter in a long dormant series. We started way back in 2010. All the films directed by Martin Scorsese that started Leonardo DiCaprio. We thought we might be done after Shutter Island, but no, actually, they took a few years off from each other, but we're back. Wolf of Wall Street. Well, we didn't think we were done. Wasn't there a rumored biography of somebody that the two were going to do again sinatra they may still do it please don't do it he's <laughs> not sinatra please don't do it but yeah that project is still floating up there i think they're still hoping to find the funding but that could happen as well i'm not sure that we'll cover it if they do yeah it was interesting to return to this series i went back and listened to our old podcasts and realized our show really has come a long way since 2010 <laughs> We didn't even do plot summaries for some of it. It was kind of rough. I got to say, that was the first time I felt like I was kind of the expert hosting a show. I definitely saw some seams in my performance. I was like, oof. Yeah, I hope I've gotten better. But yeah, it, it was fun to go back. And in the time since then, believe it or not, I actually own The Aviator on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> what bet did you lose? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I still haven't watched it again. I will never watch it again. I do stand behind everything I said on those shows, but it was three movies. The Departed, which I liked, Goodfellas, which I love, and The Aviator for nine <laughs> bucks on Blu-ray. That's how they get you with those three packs. There's always one bummer in there. <laughs> that is hilarious. You know, it stands to reason. We watch worse movies than The Aviator, despite what you may protest. And I think you own them all. I think you just will own every movie. Necropolis <laughs> has more pure enjoyment than The Aviator, minute for it minute. It does not. It does not. And every time you say that, my soul dies a little bit more. But <laughs> Rave to the Grave is a better party than The Aviator. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. Oh, I'll boy. even stand by you on superman returns is better than the aviator <laughs> well uh, these are places i cannot go however many lewds i do <laughs> 
Well, despite how you may feel about it, I do feel like all those movies really helped both participants. Scorsese obviously got a financial flush from working with the biggest star in the world, and he was able to fund projects he was never able to do. And Aviator, that was Leo's baby. He got to do that. And I think since the time that they did those four movies in succession with each other, they've gone off and been successful independently. I mean, it's worth pointing out. Since that time, Leo has had his biggest box office hit since Titanic with Inception. We covered it. You can go listen to the show. And has been on a roll, you know, kind of playing villains and nefarious types. He was uh, last year's Tarantino villain, Django. And uh, now he's back as the Wolf of Wall Street. And what's funny is listening to those old shows, I really wasn't that keen on Leo's performances. But you're right. Since his... Work with Scorsese, I love him. He is just tremendous in Django Unchained. I mean, I think that may be up there with Catch Me If You Can for his best performance ever. And yeah, he was really good in Inception. You can hear my review of that. That's a movie that's actually just grown in my esteem since we reviewed it opening weekend. And I've seen it a number of times and really like him in it. Yeah, and Scorsese hasn't done so bad himself. He actually created a HBO TV series that's still running, Boardwalk Empire. That came from him. He directed the first episode, and he actually commissioned the writer for that show to write this script for this movie we're watching now, as well as having a, at least artistic success with Hugo. You know, it showed that he didn't have to do crime films. He actually made a kid's film in between. Who would have thought that this man would have made something soft and French and light? But Hugo, and it was... It least showed that he could make a digital film, make a 3D film, and make a film for younger audiences. I think it might bore him a little, but I like the movie. It was all right. I, I don't know. Yeah. Kids film maybe, and there's not a lot of F-words or drugs or nudity, but I don't know how much children would enjoy it. I, I found aspects of it entertaining, but as a whole, I'd probably fall and not recommend Side for Hugo. But yeah, it was very different than what he's done before. Yeah, kids really have to love uh, film preservation if they want to make yes. it through that one. It's long. Yeah, it's got a robot, but it is definitely not uh, what you normally get on a Saturday morning. My real question is, did it come in under two and a half hours? Because I don't know no. that this man can. <laughs> no, I remember it being really long. <laughs> it's really long. I don't think Scorsese can be brief, and I do think part of the problem with him working with Leo is now he gets more of what he wants when maybe he should be told to... Come in on time. But that was a big struggle, has always been a big struggle, and remains one with this new project together. Three hours of Jordan Belfort, The Wolf of Wall Street. You know that they didn't want to release this movie in this length, but from what I hear, they cut an hour out. This is actually down from a four-hour cut. Yeah, this was a nightmare for now playing scheduling. We were supposed to be doing this the week after Thor, The Dark World. But yeah, all of the... Trade papers were saying it is four hours long, and we were watching it very carefully, trying to figure out what to do. Fortunately, we had Salem's Lot ready to go, and we're able to just move that up a week. But this, we didn't even know if it would come out in 2013. We were all over the map on when we would cover it, and yeah, they cut an hour out. We'll discuss if they should have cut more. <laughs> I think we're all going to agree on that one. Yeah, the movie's very long, and yes, it almost didn't make its release date, hence why we're releasing it the first week here in, in 2014, then covering it 
weekend of release like we normally like to do when these things make it to theaters. But, you know, one of the things I've loved, even if I don't love all the movies equally in this series, is the fact that each time we go back with Leo and Marty, it feels like an entirely different world. Sometimes when we're covering franchises, it's the law of diminishing returns. The next one is just a watered-down version of the last one, and so on, until you just have an acrid taste in your mouth. Here, we've had, you know, biographies, we've had gang movies, we've had crime films, we've had a horror movie. Well, now, the finance movie. Here's a first for now playing. I don't think we've ever covered one of these. It's kind of a rare subgenre that some people love. You know, Wall Street, Boiler Room. I'm one of the people who loves them. I know listeners are probably like, what? But yeah, I grew up wanting to be a stockbroker. I was hoping you would admit this because when I met you, <laughs> yes, that was, I, you know, when, when you're asked when you're young, what do you want to be when you grow up? Arnie's answer was always rich. <laughs> <laughs> and I idolized Gordon Gecko. Yes. Wall Street. I mean, what 13, 14 year old goes and sees Wall Street? Well, you got to either be a film buff or a Wall Street buff. And I happen to be both. So I was watching Oliver Stone in my early teen years, Boiler Room. This one is actually the only movie in the entire Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio retrospective that I would have seen in theaters even without now playing. I saw this coming and I was very interested in this movie because of the Wall Street genre. Yeah, I did grow out of it once I realized everybody who makes it rich on Wall Street also seems to serve some jail time. <laughs> <laughs> Decided I'd take on the tech sector instead, but yeah, I really wanted to be a stockbroker. I kind of lived in that world as a child. <laughs> I I guess I should come out and say I did work in the world of high finance for six years as well. Yeah, I so, had a week on the Chicago Board of Trade, and it went very badly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I am pretty steeped in this genre of film. And, you know, much like when I first came on this retrospective, Scorsese and DiCaprio is kind of the newbie. I, I am to Wall Street films. Not that I'm not familiar with Wall Street in real life, but, you know, I almost went and saw those Wall Street and Wall Street 2. We were talking about doing that maybe as a retrospective. That fell through, so I just never got around to seeing them. I feel like I have seen Wall Street when I was in college as a political science major and talking about free trade and all that. I mean... Greed is good. We had classes where we debated Gordon Gecko's speech from that film and watched it. I mean, that was a still a very real thing, a lasting, impactful film. And, you know, here we are still with our Wall Street films. I, I think it's relevant in our time. You know, if you go long enough, you see these cycles. And here we are again where Wall Street's a major villain. Yeah, I agree. I think that is the reason why they made this project now, is that Wall Street has been on people's minds since 2008. But, you know, it's a world I rarely understood. I think that's both my attraction and confusion with it, is that I want to understand what they're doing, but it's so intimidating. I, I think that's why I watch these movies, is that I want to learn what it is that they're doing here. It, it seems so crazy and nebulous that our economy is is built on this kind of behavior it's crazy making but yeah i've seen all of the major films i've seen wall street i have seen i'd throw glengarry glenn ross in there it's not about you know the stock market but it is about salesmen and business in general i think that's a good one um boiler room i actually just saw this week because we're covering this movie 
that was the first attempt to tell Jordan Belfort's story. It is actually the fictional version of Wolf of Wall Street with some poor schmuck who doesn't work anymore playing the Leonardo DiCaprio role. Giovanna Ribisi, or is that the unfortunate schmuck you're referring to? No, uh, Tom Everett Scott is oh, his name. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was in that. Yeah, exactly. You forgot about Tom Everett Scott. We all did. But uh, <laughs> he was the Jordan Belfort. Giovanni Ribisi was the Charlie Sheen character that steps into the world, realizes it's corrupt, and then gets out. Usually that's how these things work, right? Is that we have an innocent character who falls into it, and then after paying some kind of price, gets out of it. I think what's going to be interesting when we talk about Wolf of Wall Street is the villain and the hero are the same person. Are they? Let's get into it. Stuart, why don't you, as much as you can, summarize the plot? (laughs) Leonardo DiCaprio is Jordan Belfort, a flashy con man who talked up his seedy Long Island storefront into a financial mecca in the early 1990s, and then used those profits to fund a decadent and drug-fueled lifestyle. This so-called Wolf of Wall Street never had much luck as a traditional Manhattan stockbroker. His first day downtown was Black Friday, the infamous 1987 market crash that saw stocks plummet to their lowest level since the Great Depression. And so Belford is left unemployed and broke, but impressed with what his mentor's parting words of advice were. Never let a client cash in their investment. Always keep talking up the next scheme. And... You know, beat off a lot and do a lot of blow. And and Jordan does all of that when he relocates to the boonies, where he quickly realizes he stands to make far more selling crappy stock at a 50% commission than when he made 1% off blue chip trade. Jordan bonds over a crack pipe with his colorful neighbor Donnie, played by Jonah Hill, and the two hucksters soon set up Stratton Oakmont in a rundown body shop. Their first employees are a motley crew of drug dealers, thugs, and clueless outsiders, but never fear, Jordan writes a how-to manual that will empower them all to be aggressive salesmen, who at least sound like smart and stable financial gurus over the phone, and it isn't long before everyone is rolling in dough taken from gullible investors. Now, it's Jordan's hairdresser wife, Teresa, that encourages him to go after bigger fish. And Jordan finds that with a few modifications to his script, he can have rich folks on the hook for crummy pink sheet stock just as easily as when he was selling it to postmen and plumbers. And so Jordan repays Teresa by dumping her for a hot model named Naomi, who then proceeds to give him two children and a lot of grief about (laughs) his numerous infidelities. Naomi is also instrumental in introducing Jordan to a saucy English aunt who will help him transport cash out of the country into a Swiss bank account when the legality of Stratton Oakmont is questioned. Jordan is very reluctant to admit to criminal behavior. He's always directing the audience to look at how much fun the workplace he's created appears. It's a never-ending carnival of hookers and drug dealers, chimpanzee mail carriers, and midget toss Fridays. But, you know, FBI agent Patrick Denham isn't easily distracted, and he laughs off bribes offered on a lavish yacht while continuing to build the case against Jordan. And ultimately, it's Donnie who proves to be Jordan's undoing when, high on quaaludes, the loudmouth mutters incriminating things into a tapped phone line. Jordan forgives his fucked up friend and refuses to sell him out when the feds make Jordan wear a wire and turn in all the other Stratton employees. But in the end, 
Belfort loses his kids, his wife, his sport cars, his multiple homes. He even has to give up his massive drug habit. But he never loses that gift that got him all those things to begin with. And so 22 months after serving in a country club prison, the con artist is a free man back bullshitting easy money schemes to new audiences in a very unlikely role as a motivational speaker as credits roll. Now, this is based off of a true story. Jordan Belfort is a real guy. This movie got me because you know how movies these days, they start with an endless barrage of movie company logos <laughs> and we get all the movie logos and then we get the Stratton Oaksmont logo and I thought it was another movie company <laughs> and it turns out <laughs> we're seeing a commercial, a commercial I remember. Yes. The lion walking through. I'd see it during sports games and things when they always try to sell all that financial stuff. But this is a true story. I highly encourage all of our listeners who see this movie to do a little bit of Googling. I'll bring up some real life facts of this. It's based off his autobiography, which Stuart reviewed at Books and Nachos. But that, too, has a little bit of fluctuation from actual events it's a little yeah it's all narrated by jordan and if you don't get the sense from the movie let me break it down for you the guy's a liar and so yeah he's pretty slippery you never can nail him down he has two autobiographies i read them both wolf of wall street and catching the wolf of wall street that review is up over at books and nachos but i agree arnie do your own independent research don't trust him to tell you what happened yeah, when I first saw the trailer for this, I had no idea what we're going into, try to go in spoiler-free. I was shocked when I saw the trailer. I'm like, this is a comedy? Like, that's how they played it. And then, you know, as building up to the movie, that trailer came out so long ago, because they had no idea when this was going to get released, that, you know, watching CNN, they, they actually started showing some of the home videos of Jordan on his yacht, doing his speeches to all his cronies. And and so then, yeah, then I knew, okay, this is not a biography, but come on, there is some bullshit in here. I, I read an <laughs> article, I think it was Time Magazine, they're like, well, we're going to compare it to see how true this is to real life. Well, they didn't even compare it to what actually happened. They compared it to what was in the book. And if this stuff was in the book, I'm still calling bullshit for a lot of it. Yeah. I found several articles that compared it to what actually happened from the point of view of Donnie, his business partner's ex-wife, who is more likely to tell the truth than, say, Donnie or Jordan themselves. <laughs> they might even remember it better, given all the drugs that are involved. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, I wouldn't trust this guy's version of the truth any more than I'd trust his investment advice. Right. If you're looking for the truth, look elsewhere here. What you're looking for is a portrait, a character piece that may or may not reflect a larger view of how stockbrokers are. I mean, that's a wide brush to paint. My question up front is how relevant is Wolf of Wall Street to the concerns of today and that we've had with Wall Street? Because, you know, yeah, after 2008, I hear a movie that's coming from Martin Scorsese called The Wolf of Wall Street. I'm preparing myself for a very serious-minded Oliver Stone breakdown of what went wrong with the housing crisis and all that. But all of this stuff happened long before. What we're talking about here is basically 1990 to 1994. It, it happened long before the deregulation. It has no bearing. If you lost your house, it's not Jordan's fault. He had nothing to do with it. So I guess my question for you guys is, was that a surprise to find out that this is an early 90s piece and that Jordan isn't really, I don't know, in the scale of things, that culpable for major crimes in the financial world? I mean, the fact that it took place in the 90s, I guess that did surprise me that it was about this 
earlier Wall Street crook. But, you know, I, I think there's an insincerity here. I, I think here's an easy target, Wall Street in general. This could be from the stock market crash to 2008 when you're losing your home. You know, I think it's easy to let's make the stock market guys look bad. Let's make Wall Street look bad. Here's an easy target. We'll get the common folk sympathy to come in and see this. Even though a lot of this, once I've seen it now, there's a lot of glamorization here. So that's why I think there's an insincerity here. But I think yeah, let's go for an easy target. Wall Street, it doesn't matter what era we're putting it in as long as they look bad. I never thought this would be about the housing market. These people had nothing to do with the housing market crash. What they would have to do more with is the stock market crash that caused the recession. But I think the themes are common. I think that the fact that this isn't taking place in the 21st century, it doesn't matter because this movie is about cycles and it ends showing you the same as it began, that there's more generations of these. Jordan may have gone to jail and cleaned up. We'll discuss it. But all of his disciples are still out there. This is what the stock market still is. I mean, you look at all these people and you start looking them up. And Mark Hanna, the Matthew McConaughey character here, who inspired Jordan with all of this wisdom of cocaine and masturbation, in real life, jail, securities fraud. Now he taught Jordan. Jordan, jail, securities fraud. How many people did Jordan teach? Those are the people still out there working on Wall Street. Yeah, technically he's still teaching people if you look at the end of the movie. But yeah, he's out of the financial world. He has been out of his own company since 1994. I think that's important to keep in your mind, though. What we're covering here ends in 1994. I mean, there's no cell phones in this. They're not using the Internet. I mean, it is a real retro piece. And I want to say I love how Scorsese did it. We talked in The Aviator about how clumsily he handled setting the time period and everything. Here, this movie takes place over the span of seven years. And I really think maybe because I grew up during this period, but his use of music always told me exactly when it was. If they're listening to Hip Hop Hooray versus Baby Got Back, I always know exactly when they are. Yeah, I was right there with you, except I think they threw in the Foo Fighters a few years too early at one point. And that threw me off because I was so tuned into the music. You know, and Scorsese is an old man. I think he's 71 at this point. His musical references always seem to come from classic rock. I think of Clapton, the Rolling Stones, the 60s, that kind of stuff here. He's out of his element here. I'm sure he got a lot of advice. I don't really think that he listens to Two Live Crew. I don't think <laughs> that he knew Insane in the Membrane would work really well in this shot. I do think he had some help in this matter. But he's always been a very gifted man when it's about combining rock and roll with movies moving visual images. And yeah, there's some great ones here. But despite all this, I will say I went in knowing nothing about the story of Jordan Belfort. I mean, just what the trailers showed me. I went in pretty blank. I didn't follow this guy's rise and fall. I'd seen his company's ads. I'd actually seen his infomercial ads, but I'd not known anything about him. So when it starts off and he's got the first wife, Teresa, and he's lower than pond scum on Wall Street, I mean, we're really starting at the very beginning of his career. Of course, we start with a montage showing where it's all going to go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with the enticement. I mean, he's a salesman. He always wants to show you the good part first. And then, well... We'll get back to the other stuff, and, and maybe we'll see through the cracks and see where he might have erred. But because it is his voice, I feel like it's really reluctant to tell us exactly 
what he did wrong. It may be really frustrating for some people to know that we never quite really understand. I think at two points in the movie, he stops and turns to the audience and says, ah, you don't really want to know what I did here. Maybe it was criminal. Maybe it wasn't. But by and large, if you're looking to indict this man, if you want to hear his crimes and see him pay for it, you're not going to get that. This is a movie told from his point of view. We said it about The Aviator, that he used that OCD quality to inform and influence how that story was told. I think because he's given the story to Jordan, we're going to have a very flashy, narcissistic, outlandish three-hour tale. I think that the subject suits the presentation. Yeah, if OCD and craziness was The Aviator, excess is the Wolf of Wall Street yes. in, in material shown and in the lack of editing, everything, excess, excess, excess. Right. It, it is overbearing at times to me watching this film. But it's because it's coming from Jordan's point of view. My God, is it fun? You know, it is. You're right. He doesn't want to talk about his crimes. And from what I can tell, that's very much still the case. The man still tries to say, oh, I didn't pump and dump. I just did a little bit of stock fraud. He's always still playing himself up. And I think this is a very true portrayal and seeing the fun way he lived his life. But man, I mean, it starts off, this guy's an addict to everything. He's addicted to money. He's addicted to sex. He's addicted to drugs. Yeah. Scorsese had his own battles with chemical dependency. He knows this world. He's always been good at bringing that to the screen. I feel like, you know, Goodfellas, they waited till the third act, but there was a cocaine fall as well. What's surprising is that it's up front. This isn't going to be the story of an idealist who got off the bus and then we slowly watch him turn into a drug addict that doesn't care about his wife and hits her and all of that. No, pretty much that's every scene in the movie except, yeah, one of these early ones. His first day on Wall Street when he's meeting Matthew McConaughey, you know, he's drinking water or whatever. He might look like he's green. He might look like he's an innocent. But that's the one and only time we ever see him like that. And Matthew McConaughey in this, first of all, did he, like, go method for some other film that makes him look so gaunt? Dallas Buyers Club. Yes. Okay. Because I'm afraid the man had cancer. No, it's terrifying. And if you watch Dallas Buyers Club, oh, my God. I just worried about him the whole movie. I was just like, he's going to fall over. He is going to die. He looks so sickly in this. Believe it or not, he looks better here. So, yeah, it was shocking to see him this way. But he only gets one scene. I think his influence here is to be this movie's Gordon Gecko, to be the guy that's going to give the advice that's going to steer this kid in the direction he's going to go. And as that works, I think that he's a lot of fun here. He shows up, does his bit, disappears. You may want to see him again, but this is all you're going to get. Well, he pulled me out of it because he comes in and he's he's looking pretty sickly and he on the very first day, invites Jordan to lunch. And then at lunch, he's doing that thing I did at the opening. Uh, uh, and it just makes me think of McConaughey naked playing bongos. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have to look this up. And it turns out this real-life character didn't do that. Scorsese and Leo saw McConaughey do this as an acting warm-up exercise. McConaughey just does this to get ready for a scene. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to do that. And they make it like a theme of the whole fucking film. 
Yeah, I, you know what? I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know what it meant. I assumed it was a college fighting song. I mean, it has a sort of tribal caveman quality. I feel like it's just a macho theme. I, I didn't know where it came from, but I felt like this guy is rich and crazy enough to be able to do this in a crowded, nice restaurant, and no one is going to look twice. Though I do find it funny, McConaughey's character, what, what he's the big rich guy at that firm, and he's made a million dollars. I mean, Jordan's already told us he's made multi-million in, in that intro. It's just so funny going back a few years earlier, and the height of corruption was a million bucks. You know, the second guy in control is three hundred thousand. Yeah, <laughs> that actually shocked me because there's times in this movie where Jordan is worried because they've seized twenty million dollars, and I'm like, is that supposed to be a lot? Because today, I mean, the people who do this are billionaires. Twenty million is a taking a piss. So it was hard for me to figure out exactly how much money is a lot of money to these guys. But yeah, you start off the guys only making a million. So for him, 20 millions, 20 years work. It was 1987. What do you want? A million dollars did seem like all the money you'd ever need back then. I can remember that seeing like an insurmountable amount. It still is for me, but... And now they say that's the minimum our generation needs to ever retire. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I hear this information, I just go, well, I've made different choices, didn't I? <laughs> But I think of him as channeling Michael Douglas. Not that he's imitating Michael Douglas, but he's playing that same kind of role. You know, that that guy that just, there's something about him that's amusing, seductive, and really scary all at the same time. See, I never found McConaughey's character scary. I, I almost saw him as the light side before corruption really took over Wall Street. I'm, I'm sure there is always corruption there. But, you know, th this was the beginning, and I, I kind of like this character you know it, it, it's goofy but it's a nice origin story for why jordan becomes who he is later you know this great talk about all the different drugs how many times minimum amount of jerking off you got to do a day this tribal beat i i think it's a nice origin story for jordan i don't think this guy though was jordan's origin i think he was his inspiration i mean you see jordan when he shows up at Wall Street, why is he at Wall Street? He says he grew up greedy, much like Stuart kind of described me. Okay, okay, inspiration mentor. I, I think in a film, you got to condense that down to one character. I'm sure there are many instances in this guy's real life. You know, you always hear about how these, they take an autobiography and they condense five characters into one. I, I think this is a nice summation of that mentor, that inspiration character. It's the only one mentioned in the book. He doesn't really go into his early influences. He barely mentions his parents. It takes a second book for him to mention what he did before he went to Wall Street. He just doesn't like to talk about where he gets his ideas. So, yeah, this is the one character that we're told was a mentor, and so this is why there's only one here. And again, the movie never says it. It makes it look like Mark Hanna just went down with Black Monday. Truth be told, Mark Hanna really was an inspiration for he was arrested for securities fraud. Yeah. But he's probably out now. He's probably into something else. I mean, you act as if prison is the end of the line. It is just part of the cycle. You know, it's a country club retreat. You know, you go on holiday, you'll come back and you'll invest in junk bonds or something else. Who knows? But I wouldn't be surprised if this man is still active and out in the financial world. But it almost is the end for Jordan. Black Friday is so debilitating. He's looking at the classifieds thinking about going to sell electronics. I love the fact that for 
him, we just get a sense that he's he's hungry for money. He'll do whatever it takes. He was going to leave this. You know, he had jobs before he went to Wall Street. He could maybe do something else. It's only really because of his nice wife that he finds out that they're hiring stockbrokers in Long Island. Yeah, we know from the very opening that that's not going to be his wife later on. <laughs> and, of course, I think that's almost... uh trope in real life as well as fiction where you start off with the nice normal wife become rich become famous then you get the wife that was unattainable when you were normal yes exactly she he is at least very gracious in the novel of saying she was a heart of gold he never speaks ill of her which is rare because most everyone else in his life he will talk some kind of shit about but her he always said nice things and i think they treat her well in the context of this movie she's lucky to get out quite frankly she's lucky that she didn't get sucked into the pimp pad and everything that was to come in my estimation she probably got a nice 50 percent deal that didn't get taken away by the fbi later yeah. And that actress, I recognized her. It's She's the mother from How I Met Your Mother. Oh, didn't know. I didn't know they had a mother character in that. I guess they're wrapping it up. Yeah, it's in the last season. They just introduced the mother last episode last season. And I guess she'd already filmed Wolf of Wall Street, and so this helped her get that TV gig. Yeah, she just seems like the girl next door. She seems normal. She's a hairdresser, you know, but she is instrumental, at least the way that they write it for this movie. She's the one that, yeah, gets him out to Long Island, and she's the one that tells him, stop picking on plumbers and working class types. Go after rich people that can afford to lose money. So maybe it's her fault. I, again, I don't know if that's what actually happened. It isn't. From what I've read... He went after poor people, too. I, I Again, I feel that's part of the glossing over. Again, insincerity here. We want to criticize Wall Street, but we also want to have a nice, shiny protagonist that's entertaining to watch and not have you totally hate him the whole film. But should you hate him? I mean, let's look at that. This movie, he is our protagonist, and we see this lavish lifestyle that he's getting. I mean, even when he's just working in the sleazy place that she sends him, where they're selling penny stocks. And for everything I knew, I had to actually research exactly what penny stocks were. And what they are is just companies kind of like Venganza Media Incorporated. Yeah, yeah, we're publicly trading. I think we're worth, what, half a cent? If you sell $10,000 worth of this stock, I will personally give you a blowjob for free. <laughs> and I hope it happens. Yeah, but not the Alien series. Those are locked up in the vault. <laughs> but he's the, taking the money there from the plumbers and things, but later he's taking money from rich people. What the movie glosses over is why he was being investigated. He was being investigated because people lost their shit. They lost their money and they filed complaints saying this guy did illegal stuff that robbed me blind. Yet here we are celebrating the lifestyle his stolen money afforded him. Exactly. I mean, when he gets to this penny stock firm, the first thing he does is, what, sell four, $6,000, this garbage man's life savings for this shack in Indiana that's making microwaves or missiles or something like that. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yes. A lot of people get hurt, but we never feel that hurt. They're anonymous to us. And that's kind of strange. You know, in Boiler Room, they actually show Giovanni Ribisi have a relationship with one of his clients, and we see what's at stake with the money that he's gambling with. Here, we never see any of those victims. We only hear mention that the wife steers him away from them at some point to go specifically after Big Fish, after the whales. But no, yeah, we don't feel the pain. 
And I think she does that for a moral reason, like take the money from people who can afford to lose it instead of taking the garbage man's life savings. But by the same token, I don't think he does it for moral reasons. I think he does it because rich people have more to give. Yeah. Oh, I never thought he did it for moral reasons. That's exactly yeah, why no. he did it. <laughs> yeah. Unlike most Scorsese characters, this guy doesn't have any kind of moral compass. I usually feel like there's religion or there's something that is in this person's life. They may be a gangster, but they're also a Catholic, and I, I feel like they struggle with what they do. Here, there's no struggle. Yeah, he only does it because he wants more money. I mean, he's he's really simple to understand. I guess the question that's on the table at this point is, is it okay that we're laughing about this? Are you cool with the fact that Scorsese has decided to tell this story as a black comedy? Was there any other way to tell it? Could we stand to watch the insidiousness of this man's deeds without amusement or at least, you know, irony? Well, you know, I want to be entertained when I watch a film. I want to laugh. I want to have a good time. But I also want, especially if you're going to try to take a real life circumstance like this, a real life person, and, you know, whether we like it or not, whatever percentage read that book, more are going to see the movie. That that's, seems yeah. like how it always works. That's what's going to guide the public consciousness. So I, I think when you're dealing with characters like this, you got to take some kind of responsibility for how you portray that. You know, later on, we're going to get a little bit of cat and mouse with the FBI. And I, as we get into it, I, I think those are some of the best scenes. But uh, so much of this is, to me, is, you know, a Saturday Night Live skit show. Just like, here's a drug skit and here's a horse skit and, you know, laugh, laugh, laugh. Indulgence, overindulgence. It's entertaining at first, but it wears on me. It's at some point I wanted to, to see this focus. And here at the beginning, yes, this is where you get all the craziness and have the characters. That's how a film usually works. And then you focus and you tell your story. I just don't know if that focus ever comes in here. I'm going to give Scorsese some kudos here because I really had to think about this. I'm watching these scenes of just utter wealth and debauchery. I mean, midget tossing. It's shaving a woman's head because she'll let you do it for $10,000. I mean, which she's then going to use for a yeah, boob for job. <laughs> yeah, it just never ends. And because she's already a C cup. I mean, they're not even needed boob jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it never ends as far as the depravity. But yes. And I'm watching this and I'm laughing. I'm finding the scenes funny. I'm, there's a lot of jokes in here. I mean, it's telling that Jonah Hill plays the number two partner. Donnie who married his cousin, and you bring in a comedian to play the second in command, you know what kind of tone is being set. And these scenes are funny by the same token, and maybe I'm alone on this podcast, I'm jealous of his rock and roll lifestyle. I want the mansion. I want the lifestyle. You know what? There's the line, you know, there's no nobility in being poor. No one wants to be poor. That I agree, Arnie. I want the mansion. I want it with integrity, though. I don't want to rip off people, especially poor people. You, you talked about that scene where the woman's shaving her head for $10,000. That scene actually, it gave me a sick feeling in my stomach. The way that actress played it, that that look of regret and fear on her face. Like, at first she's all into <laughs> it, but then you see her turn like, I can't believe I just did this. Like, that was sickening to me in my stomach. I actually am betting they really shaved an actress's head and that wasn't acting. I bet that was, oh shit, there goes my hair. 
Yeah, it, it's true. It, you're, you're absolutely right. It actually was a sister of a friend of Leo's that agreed to do it. They couldn't find anybody to do it, but she finally volunteered and maybe she did regret it. But like the character in the movie, she was probably paid well. Yeah, I was thinking maybe they actually literally gave her $10,000 to do it as well. But here's the thing about that is, yeah, he's doing this. He's living this lifestyle off of poor people or off of robbing rich people. I mean, that's what Forbes calls him is the Robin Hood who robs from the rich and gives to himself. But that isn't portrayed. It's background. You've got to really pay attention to it. It would have been a much more obvious way to go to counterbalance this with the story of somebody who lost their stuff. Like, if you think about the movie Wall Street, in that movie, Charlie Sheen gets under the tutelage of Gordon Gecko, but then as you see this lifestyle, which is nowhere near as decadent, that just involves Daryl Hannah and some bad art, then you get to see the downside when Gordon Gecko sets his sights on Charlie Sheen's father's company and starts dismantling it and making them all lose their jobs. And that movie has the very heavy-handed, oh, you thought this was good, but this is bad bit to it that in the 80s was actually revelatory to some people, and now we're just kind of like, uh-huh, and? And so by making that just in the background, just you got to pay attention to even know people are hurting because of this, I think it creates a moral ambiguity with this film where you're laughing, but then you feel bad for laughing. I was laughing as that woman shaved her head, and then I felt bad. I was laughing as the dwarves were being tossed, and they had the conversation, those people gossip. They're superhuman. They're made to be tossed. I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm feeling bad for laughing. And I think that is the intent. And I think Scorsese did a great job with that. Yeah, that's the nature of black comedy is that you laugh about inappropriate things. Your head tells you one thing and your gut makes you, you know, respond in an emotional way. And uh, yes, this is a black comedy. I think that's all good. It would not be a Scorsese movie if it were about other characters. I think that when you look at the bulk of what Scorsese does is he picks one dude and he gives him free reign to be whoever he's going to be. And maybe that guy is the taxi driver who's planning to kill a politician, or maybe he's a boxer, maybe he's Howard Hughes, Goodfellas. That was the one that I really went back to because it's very similar. This movie has a very similar quality to Goodfellas in that it is filled with dark humor about people that we know we should not respect, but on one level are encouraged to do so. I mean, in fact, if this were made at an earlier time, I could see these parts, instead of being played by Leo and Jonah, being played by Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci. Yeah, I went back to Goodfellas, too, because there are a lot of similarities. I mean, just the narration going on here. Mm -hmm. and again, it feels so heavy-handed here, but I'm like, well, it worked in Goodfellas. That was the film I went back to to compare this to, to see, like, why certain things here didn't work for me, and they worked with that. And, and you know, I, I think what it comes down to for me, why maybe – I don't know if I'm offended. It's just like – why are we making light of the situation? Because when it comes to, you know, Italian gangsters, that doesn't have a real life effect on me. When it comes to people losing their homes, getting ripped off in stocks, that's like more real. That, that is hit home, close to home to family members around me. And so I, I guess that's why a lot of the time, yes, laughing, haha, midgets are superhuman. And, uh, but I kept distancing myself. I kept stopping myself from laughing so much throughout because of, the material, what the crimes going on in this film were so different than what I, you know, with Italian gangsters and stuff Scorsese has done before, crazy taxi drivers. It hasn't affected my family at all. That's exactly right, Jacob. It's something that I struggle with. I, in my head, was like, 
I like this movie, but why don't I like it as much as Goodfellas? It's so similar to Goodfellas. And here's what I came up with. With Italian gangsters, on some level, it was about a community. It was about creating a family. Yeah, they might have killed people. Yeah, they might have whacked each other. But there was a code of conduct, and you had to respect it. Here, I mean, there is a gang that's assembled, and I think we should talk about them now. But I never feel like Jordan is going to protect them. In the book, maybe I'm tainted by having read the real story, too. He really turns against some of his employees. He sees them as betraying him. He goes after the Asian guy. He goes after some other ones. He really punishes them in real life. And here, I think we're supposed to think of them in the same way that we do with Henry Hill's gang and Goodfellas, that they're against the law, and maybe that makes them bad people, but together there's team spirit. There's a a chest-thumping unity. Well, what I couldn't help but keep thinking, though, is, and this was the second time I watched this movie. I did watch it twice for this review. He is guiding them. He is teaching them. He, They are forming themselves in his image. He was the first one to give that great sales pitch to these penny stocks and then to rip these people off and giving them the sales script. He gets a lot less jail time by ratting on all of them. Yes. I mean, he in the end... He uses all of them to help himself. The mind trick is that he tells people, we're in this together to hurt other people, but he's manipulating those people just as much as he is the targets over the phone. I mean, everyone. That's the difference between Goodfellas and this movie is, in Goodfellas, there was mutual respect. Here, everyone is out for themselves. And that's why you just can't like Jordan as much as you like Ray Liotta and Goodfellas. But I will say, I think Leo does a fantastic job in this movie. I think he gets the comedy, nails the comedy, and partly due to his star power, we can just never hate him as much as we should. I think he does good in this. I can't say that I think this is like his best role ever. I think it's kind of an easy role, isn't it? I mean, isn't it easy to play depraved and happy i don't think there's a lot of hard acting going on here at no point is he trying to make me feel it's hard to keep people on your side i would think that if many people attempted this role i would turn against them if bradley cooper tried to do this i probably would be throwing tomatoes before the first hour was up yeah i just think this role i think it's right for leo i think leo is the right choice he has the charisma to pull this off i don't know if he's doing anything that he hasn't done before it's like when i go see tom cruise in a movie i pretty much know what to expect and not not to say that's good or bad but when i see leo i think leo steps and and stories above tom cruise when it comes to acting but i know i kind of know what to expect he doesn't do anything that surprises me what he does he does it well you know i feel like he's kind of doing candy from django unchained without the southern accent he's slimy but he's charismatic and and yeah there is a charm to him there you do want to buy into his i'll, I'll call it a cult so that's what he's running here and i want to drink the kool-aid at times from the speeches he gives i mean i'm glad that he's not trying to do say a Boston accent again or anything like that. He has a little bit of a cadence to his voice to go for New York and it works. I think he's fun in the role, but I'm, I hear Oscar talk for it and I'm like, I don't know that this is that kind of thing. If he gets it, it's almost like Marissa Tomei level of, okay, it was a funny movie. I don't know that you've really affected my life. That's always why comedies get short shrift at the Oscars, is that we want to see serious parts rewarded. And here, you know, I think we should reward Leo because he chose not to be serious. I mean, keep in mind, 
all the other movies in this series, he's angsty. He's wrapped with pain and he's, it's all emotion all the time. He's chosen to be funny. And I think that that's great. You know, with Django and this movie, there's still dark themes. There's still dramatic heft to what is being told here, but he is being lighter and he's proving he can do that, which he hasn't in a long time. It was fun to see him do comedy. Yeah, I think if this came out before Django, it would have seemed as more of a revelation, this more yeah. humorous side. I think that's one of the charms of Django is that it was so surprising to see Leo take on that role and have that cadence and, and that humor in a role. And he took risks of being unlikable in Django, whereas here, I don't think he ever comes off as unlikable in the movie we're given. I disagree. They definitely tweak it up in the third. You know, the, the third act is all about the fall. I definitely think there's a scene with the second wife where they really say, okay, everyone is now going to hate him. And oh, I, I actually ended up hating the wife in that scene, but we will get there. Okay. Well, I'll save it. But I do feel like he's always an asshole, but for two-thirds of this movie, he's a lovable asshole. Then that last third, he's just a total asshole. But you want to talk about his gang. The number two is Donnie, Jonah Hill, I mentioned already. What a strange, strange character this guy is. <laughs> He's smoking crack, which I, I have a negative connotation with crack. I think. Really? I wonder why. <laughs> I think, well, I think poor. I think teeth losing. I, it's not a glamorous drug like cocaine. Right. And he's got such white teeth. It's amazing that it hasn't affected his dentistry. And he married his cousin. I had to look that up because I'm like, why would they insert this? They changed the character's name probably yeah. because of a lawsuit would have followed if they didn't. But he really did marry his cousin. What a strange thing. When you're editing an hour out of the movie, what a strange thing to leave in is the cousin marrying. I, see, yeah. I, I was going, especially later on, I started editing this film in my mind. Again, when you're setting up these characters, you want to set this dude up as like just this strange whack ball. Again, you look at all of Jordan's gang. They're all just oddballs and miscreants and you don't want anything to do with them. I, yeah, throw in some cousin marrying. Why not? You know, not just crack smoking, not just wearing like these glasses and white teeth that portray this certain image. Yeah, throw in the cousin marrying as well. Yeah, you know what? Jonah is funnier than Leo. I'm going to say that. You need, you had to have someone outshine him in the comedy department here. It's the Joe Pesci role. I'm telling you, it's the same thing. Joe Pesci would be the more dangerous, the more funny, the more crazy, the one that you knew was actually going to ruin everything. But you kept him around because he amused you. He was a clown. So I definitely think that Jonah works really well in this role. And I was surprised because... I just don't take Jonah Hill that seriously. I mean, I think of him as not doing this kind of part. Is it, this is an Academy Award nominee. Yeah, and I liked Jonah Hill back when he first came out with Superbad and those kinds of movies. How this guy can oscillate between The Sitter and then Oscar-nominated <laughs> roles is just dumbfounding. Same way this guy could be like 400 or 200 pounds. <laughs> it's true. I just don't care for Jonah Hill anymore. I just haven't liked any performance he's given lately. In this movie, I think he works, but I also think he kind of stands out as, what's Jonah Hill doing here? <laughs> you know, I started turning on Jonah Hill. Maybe it was around the time of The Sitter. You know, super bad. Love that one. And then he had a series of comedies. But you know what? Uh, 
this is the end. He started to bring me back. He played himself a little bit differently, did a caricature of himself. And it, it really depends. I feel like, though, there's always improv going on with him in this. And, and I really saw it in this film. I'm like, oh, this scene is going on so long because he just got going on some riff because that's what he does. That's what he's used to doing on the set. What I read is most of the dialogue in this is improv. And I, I felt that from Rob Reiner more than I felt it from him. But a lot of this is just they set up an idea and just let the actors play with the dialogue. I think it works well, at least for Jonah. I think all his scenes are hilarious. Yeah, the cousin, the admission that he's going to let his, you know, inbred children run free in the country and all of that. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> it's great. I, he's just great in this movie. I really feel like it may be my favorite moment from him since Superbad, but I disagree with you guys. I think he's done good work throughout his career. Cyrus, Moneyball, he's worked. It's just that he does a lot of crap because he's in a lot of mainstream comedies as well. So I don't see those films. I don't hold them against him. I like him as a character actor. He is our Joe Pesci. I'm for it. I gotta say that I disagree with Grade here. I think he can really only play one person and that's himself. When he's on the plane with Jordan in this and kind of touching the face, it's just like when he goes boop back in super bad. I don't think this guy has range. I don't think he's Joe Pesci. I don't think Joe Pesci had range, but, you know, he's still fun. Joe Pesci made me sad when he died in Goodfellas. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Whereas here, if they'd shot Jonah Hill, I'd have been down with it. He is so slimy in this role. I, yeah, I, I just think that's the problem. You never want it. As bad as Jordan is, at least Jordan has charisma. This dude has no charisma. My question is, maybe they Jordan talks about this in the book. Why does Jordan hire him? You get this great scene where Donnie's like, you show me a stub for $72,000 and I'll quit my job right now and work for you. Was Jordan hiring? Like, I thought that was kind of a weird <laughs> cut that all of a sudden this guy quits his job and Jordan's like, um, yeah, sure. Come work for me for selling penny stocks. Not in the book. It's not clear. He's just a friend from way back. And you know, honestly, reading between the lines, drugs. I think that they just piled around together because they did drugs together. He was his drug buddy. And that's clear in the movie. I mean, he clearly is his Quaalude connection. Well, I mean, John Bernthal is the Quaalude king, but they go to him for the drugs and he's the one that turns him on to crack. I think that, that at the end of the day, they understand each other because they have the same ups and downs with chemicals. And I don't understand the need for this scene in the restaurant because I did look this up. All false. They didn't meet in a restaurant. He didn't just immediately quit his job and go to work for Jordan. They were childhood friends. He was just another one of the gang, like the rest of this gang that Jordan gets together, people who he knew growing up, who mostly sold drugs. Right. We get to know them because they have nicknames. But as far as the rest of the gang, they don't become Paul Sorvino and Robert De Niro and feel like that family in Goodfellas. I see them as, yeah, a guy wearing a toupee or the token woman, but I don't really see them as interesting supporting players. And so I just don't feel like Stratton Oakma is a good equivalent with the traditional Scorsese gang. Yeah, I don't feel like there's loyalty there. I feel like there's a lot of slime and ickiness there. They they do get that right. Like, I see this gang in the office. I'm like, ugh, that is not people I want to be around. I can hang out with Italian gangsters as long as there's loyalty and respect. But these Wall Street people, they do come off so slimy, and they do do that well. They don't have to, you know, go into the backstory of each character. It's just like, here's a bat pay. Here's this Asian guy with this really bad, like, proto-vanilla ice, huge hair, like... <laughs> We get this scene where they bring in all the hookers. And, dude, that is a rapey vibe of a scene where it's just like 
party on. And I get what that gang is about. I don't like it, but I totally understand it without really delving into all these different characters. I'm going to disagree with you, Jacob. I'd rather party with some coked out Wall Street people than some people who are packing guns and could shoot me at any moment. That's just me. You seem to really be glorifying these mobsters, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, because nobody in your family has been killed by a mobster. You're better with them. And I like respect (laughs) and integrity and loyalty. Those are values that I like. And despite that they are killing people and do horrible crimes as well, at least they have those values. We have that foundation. They are loyal. It's worth pointing out later when auditors come, at least as it's presented in the movie, not how he presents it in the book. All of these people toe the line and say, I don't remember. I couldn't tell you and I'll have another donut and waste your time, but I'm never, you're never going to get anything from my lips. These people are seen as doing whatever he says. Yeah, they're loyal to him and then he sells them out. Yes. But they don't have a thought in the head that he doesn't put there. They're blank slates by which he scribes the word. They basically repeat whatever he says for them to do. And and they love him for it because he's made them rich and decadent. You also get the one scene where they really do look like thugs is there's a digression where the gay butler has decided to have an orgy in the penthouse and these guys come over and decide, I don't, if you're talking about scenes to cut, they probably could have cut this one, but it really does demonstrate that these guys are willing to be wise guys. They dangle the gay butler over the ledge. They threaten to drop him. That is hysterical. So I think that they're, they're one shade more legit than Goodfellas, but not much. But again, that that scene there, it never comes back. Yeah, there's a whole scene that could be cut, and I found it somewhat, I don't know if offensive is the right word, but here we are, we're laughing at all these hookers and blowjobs, we get this whole scene where they talk about the different stocks of whores, you know, your Nasdaqs and your blue (laughs) chips, all that, but then when we have the homosexual orgy, now that's supposed to be played as shock and disgust, and we're going to beat that guy up, then we'll get the cops, pay them off to beat this guy up. It's Jordan's attitude. It's not the filmmakers. I think you have to recognize a difference between that. If you think the filmmakers are telling you that, you're probably going to get offended. If you think the filmmakers are showing you how this guy thinks, I think they've done us a favor. I think at least that's the material that I've seen Leo talk about in the press. I appreciated this guy's honesty. I don't appreciate his character, but he had the guts to say what he really thought, and now we can know what it's like i mean it's insight but i'm not not even talking about jordan's insight. i'm talking about the way scorsese shot it all the scenes with naked women slow motion you see titties bouncing this one was supposed to be played as like you know the record scratch walk in the door and ha 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 whoa weird gay orgy going on again it's a subtle thing it's debatable but the reaction from the crowd was very different than when naked ladies are parading around and i think they were all shot for humor i mean look at when jordan first beds naomi his second wife (laughs) he fucked the shit out of her for 11 seconds and then when they go at it a second time there's a dog jumping on his foot the funny little (laughs) pomeranian rocky and I think that all the sex scenes are played for humor. When he's having his bachelor party in Vegas, there's all these 50 passed out hookers and just, he's walking past, he's feeling one up just out of road habit. I think it's all played for humor. I think Stuart's right. I think the way they film the gay orgy and the way they film the straight orgies is the same. And I found them all funny. And if people had a record scratch reaction, Perhaps it was your audience not able to go with the joke. 
Well, you know, audience is key in this. I'm really grateful that I saw this in a crowded theater. I could feel the differences when moments of shock would come on. I mean, it was visceral. You could feel it working over people. I agree. Some people were really taken out by this moment here, but Jordan may not have liked it. The wife may not have liked it, but they do at least allude to the fact that uh, Jonah Hill's character might have frequented the Lollipop Club. We we don't really know. It's a scene that could be cut. I'll give you that. It didn't need to be here, but what it does is it keeps the debauchery and sex high. We never have too many scenes go by without someone else getting naked, and it really does just keep everything in your face. You're going to be off your keel. It's just not the kind of film I would expect a 71-year-old man to present to us, particularly after he made Hugo. It was nice to see Scorsese shock people again. Was it shock? I guess for a lot of audience, yes, it was shocking. I I read some article, the most F-words ever in a film was this. I'm like, oh, okay. I I guess I didn't notice, you know. It's also a really long movie. I wonder if per capita, if that's still the (laughs) case. Per minute, (laughs) if it's the most (laughs) F-words. That's exactly right, is that, uh, you know, we see a lot of different varieties of movies. If you see a lot of midnight B-movies, you see a lot of ultraviolence, you see a lot of F-bombs, so we may be desensitized to it. This is a mainstream movie. This landed in every theater in the country. Old people went and saw this movie. I was in a crowd full of blue hairs, and let me tell you, they were shocked. They were muttering as they left. The language, I mean, you could just sense the fact that they had seen something very unsettling that if your point of reference was oliver stone's wall street this is up a hundred notches it's probably the dirtiest oscar screener to ever be sent yeah and because it celebrates it it makes it feel even more dirty because it doesn't have that third act where it says well you know this is very very bad it really feels complicit in all of this debauchery Maybe that's subversive, or maybe this is glamorization. I guess that's up for debate. It sounds like, Jacob, you're you're for the latter. Yeah, I, I think this does glamorize it. And when we get to the end, I think Scorsese tries to, to turn it on the audience and make them think we'll get there. But, you know, much like when we talked to Arnie and Brock and I talked about Rambo, that last film where he's like, no, this is an educational piece about this country. no. This is about blowing off a lot of squibs and making it ultra-violent. Like, you could say it's educational, you could say we're trying to warn you, but I I think with films, you're always going to glamorize it. You know, I've read articles about the movie Wall Street that Armani suits weren't big amongst brokers until Michael Douglas donned one and slicked back his hair. And then that became the image. Even though they took the total wrong point of that film, that's what brokers became because that made it cool and so i I, again i think there's an insincerity are you trying to say hey this debauchery is a bad thing but you're just going to show it to us for three hours i i I guess i will have to debate it as this film goes along what is this film trying to do i really think that depends on your own personal moral compass and without saying too much i mean like i said i'm jealous of this guy's lifestyle whereas the blue hairs are probably like that is so wrong yeah. I'm thinking it's a rock and roll lifestyle, and I'm not going to judge Vince Neil for it. I'm not going to judge Tommy Lee for it. Why am I going to judge Jordan Belford for it other than, well, he stole to make it happen? Yeah, I, I think that is a key difference. I'll say this much. I am fine with Scorsese and Leo presenting whatever character they want to. I had read the books. I knew what was coming. 
but I can't say that I found this character as interesting as they did. My complaint, my major one with this movie is I don't feel like it needs to be indulged to the length that it is. I mean, it's indulgent because they want to show an indulgent lifestyle, but for my taste, after two hours, most comedies are kaput. You can't make someone laugh about the same joke for three hours. It's just, it's impossible. And here, they struggle, and I think this movie does go on too long. I agree with you it goes on too long. I disagree that the movie goes on too long because of a meta reason the movie is indulgent because Jordan Belfort is indulgent. No, no. Martin Scorsese is fucking indulgent. I went back and listened to our last four podcasts. All of them were like too long. (laughs) (laughs) This one felt it. Here's the thing. Oh, the aviator felt it. (laughs) Okay, the aviator did feel it. But here's the thing with drug movies and not that this is like a hardcore drug movie a lot of drugs though and i think about you know Stuart, you're saying uh maybe you don't feel for jordan belfort you're not on his side that's why you're not going with it let me take another film that's not three hours it's 140 minutes sid and nancy about you know sid vicious from the sex pistols love the sex pistols like totally into that story i cannot stand that movie that is an hour and 40 minutes of heroin shots rehab withdrawals heroin shots rehab like just this whole cycle of drugs maybe it's something about drug films when they just that cycle just keeps going and it's just so tedious and it's like just move on get past the exits just either die or go through rehab and clean up it feels tedious to me seeing this cycle over and over again for three hours yeah but this is appealing to people who are insatiable so i do feel like on some level yeah Scorsese is an indulgent filmmaker, and yes, most of his films are probably 10 to 15 minutes too long, but here it's an hour too long. And I think that it's indulgent in that way because for people like Jordan, they'd never get enough of watching all of this drunk driving and wrecking planes and boats and all of this. It's just for them. Artie, you're the one identifying with Jordan. Is this for you? Yeah, Stuart, you're the Scorsese fan. I would say he needs to cut an hour out of most of his films, but 20 minutes out of this one. Oh. <laughs> you you are so a cokehead Wall, Wall Street broker. <laughs> it was my dream. And I'll go back to what you said, Jacob, about the SNL sketches. For me, I did think this is like a bunch of SNL sketches. The single funniest scene, both times I watched this movie, the one where if DiCaprio gets nominated, he should be nominated for physical comedy, is when he takes the lemon quaaludes, the quaaludes uh. that have been sitting around since the 70s. And then (laughs) he doesn't think they're working, so he takes more. And I caught this on the second one. They're watching Family Matters. And the episode of Family Matters they're watching, it's really subtle, is Urkel and... Reginald Vell Johnson are in a hot air balloon and Urkel keeps pulling the string that makes them float. And he goes, well, maybe if I pull it twice, it'll go down. And so he pulls it (laughs) twice and they just keep getting higher. And meanwhile, you see these guys like it's not working. Let's take two more. And you know, they're just getting higher. And so he finally gets a call from his private investigator who tells him his phones are bugged. He has to race home to get Donnie off the phone. And that's when they kick in and the, best joke of the movie he finds a new face with quaaludes the cerebral palsy face and he's crawling to his car and this crawl is crawl like skylar crawl <laughs> like his child at home i love that yeah the son of a bitch makes it look so easy <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is hysterical it is the moment i mean there's a lot of funny scenes in this movie but this one is just i mean it could play 
completely alone. I wish it did. <laughs> I had to wait, what, two and a half hours to get to that scene. And the utter punchline that he thought he made it home safe, and he thinks he didn't hit anything, and then he wakes up the next morning and sees his car, the police are there to arrest him, because he hit everything on the way home. You know, I'm glad they did that, because I'm not usually one to catch continuity errors, but I noticed he gets in his white Ferrari, and the passenger side door was up, and then he's behind the wheel, and it cuts, and it's closed. I'm like, continuity error, someone's... They didn't catch it, but then they totally play it off because, yes, that door was up the whole time. He just didn't realize it in his drug-induced state. That skit really worked for me to use the skit scenario. But, yeah, there were several that didn't. And some of the wife stuff, like when the second wife, who I can't believe she hasn't worked before. I can't believe she's not really a model. His wife, Naomi. I don't know. Was that a voice? Was that an accent she was doing? Because maybe that's why. She's Australian. Okay. Okay. So that was not her real voice. No, I, I looked her up. She is, uh, I bet you did. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think though, she's a total money hungry bitch. She's a gold digger. I think she is one of the most evil characters in this movie. I mean, she shows up at Jordan Belfort's home. She knows he's married and she seduces him breaks up their marriage, and even though he's out there fucking hookers and cheating on her constantly, she gets upset about it, but she sticks around and when does she leave? When the money goes away. She is whoa, the- Whoa, 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 this is the one you're turning on? Not the dude that's like ripping off thousands of people for millions of dollars. It's the one that just, you know, is gonna marry the guy and get a little piece of it. The opportunist Coors beer model. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? It's worse in the book. I will say they've actually cut some stuff out to make her more likable. If you recall, there's a scene where it's revealed her teddy bear has a camera inside of it. Yeah, what it was the point of that scene? <laughs> there, Here's another big, long scene that didn't need to be there. I love that scene because it was funny again the way her punishment of him is going to be that she's going to wear short skirts, no panties, and really just give him blue balls all the time. And he turns it around because she's on the security camera and the two Roccos are seeing it all. But that doesn't play out at all. That's not the real punchline. The real punchline was she was having her own affairs and he had them on tape. And if she tried to sue him for having his own infidelities, he would use them against her. That's the truth of it. Everyone was manipulating everyone else. There were no loyal employees. There was no loyal wife. There was no loyalty in this world. And I do think the screenwriter tweaked some of that so that we would like this character more. That you still hate her the most, Arnie, I think it's interesting. I just think that every single person who did the crime did the time here, except for her. She's the one who got out. Well, she's got two kids. I, I, again, I'm assuming she ends up with almost nothing after the feds take everything. Everybody here is still rich. Everybody here. Yeah. Jordan Belfort, in addition to selling his book to Scorsese for millions of dollars. Well, yeah, which I got a problem no, no, with. No, 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 no. <laughs> He's not rich off of that. He owes $110 million. He is paying all of that back. If you're no, buying bullshit. this book. Bullshit. He ain't paying shit. He owes it. He's not paying it. He makes 50000 a day. He owes $110 million. He's paid ten. There was recently, just late last year, an investigation into why he's not paying more. Oh. He claimed in an interview 100% of the profits that he's making from this movie and this book are going to the victims. Then why do they only have $10 million? Again, our premise at the beginning of this movie, he's a fucking liar. <laughs> he was billed 110. He didn't pay it. And Donnie, l let's talk real life about Donnie here, who also went to jail. He went to jail for four years versus Jordan's two after Jordan ratted him out. 
His cousin wife left him. He also owes millions and millions of dollars to his victims. How much did he pay? Nothing. He drives a Bentley. His new wife drives a Bentley. Everything is in his wife's name. He's penniless. These fuckers are still living on this money. These assholes still have all this money. They did a couple years at a country club. Don't tell me that they lost everything. Don't tell me they're fucking poor. The people they're poor are the people they screwed over, including their ex-wives, the first ones. All right, that is crazy making. I didn't realize that I was, I guess I was hoping that at least he was being held to paying down his debt, but, uh, I, I knew that he was still living comfortably, but I didn't know that. More comfortably than anyone on this call or probably anyone listening to this call ever will. Donors? If you are more comfortable than Jordan. Remember my earlier offer. We got pants. <laughs> Tempting as that may be, yes, I'm not looking for those donations to come in. It, this is not a lifestyle I dream about having. It's not something that I thought I would ever have. It's only infuriating and to know that he's done it on the backs of other people. I'm not jealous about what he had or or continues to have here. That's not the source of the anger for me. And I don't really hold this ex-wife as anything other than an opportunist that she was just like him. She saw an opportunity and went after him. It, what it is, what we're dealing with, again, are characters that are only in for themselves. And so, thus, I think the loyalty here, if there is one that they try to build in the movie, it is between Leo and Jonah. We were, we're expected to think that it's bigger than money with them, but for everyone else, it's just about the money. Leo does, in fact, of course, say Jonah's life. You mentioned in that very same sequence in which he's coming home on the Quaaludes and trying to crawl to, you know, the kitchen to stop Donnie from getting off the phone, the movie extends that. It actually takes another moment where the Donnie character had a heart attack and turns it into him choking on cold cuts. And we have another another funny TV interlude where Popeye inspires Leo to get his spinach, or in this case, cocaine, and get the strength to go up and, and give him the Heimlich. I, I do feel like that's the bond we're supposed to care about. It's a Jonah and Leo movie. It's not uh, Leo and whoever his hot wife is. And I was, I started getting a Scarface vibe at that point when he's pouring cocaine all over his face just to be able to give the Heimlich. <laughs> I was more weirded out that he snorted blow from a woman's ass, but yeah, it, the coke was strange <laughs> to me. I don't know if cocaine works that quickly, but I've never done cocaine in a bunch of quaaludes before. And again, I, I think there are moments of like brilliance in this film. And, and that was one of them, intercutting it like with Popeye. And instead of spinach, he's going to do the cocaine to get the strength to save his friend. Like I, I get that what I'm watching is already a cartoon. I, I'm assuming that so little of this is based on real life. This is coming from the deranged mind of Jordan Belfort, who is just used to hookers and drugs and has lost almost every sense of reality in actual real life. Again, I did like moments. I, I thought the whole physical comedy is squirming. I'm like, oh man, we gotta watch him go all the way to the door. Especially when there was a guy, there was some kind of bellboy or something in that country club at that <laughs> desk. I thought it was weird that they're like, here's a dude flopping around, we're not gonna call 911, or at least get security to kick him out. There was a lot of unnecessary details in this movie. Like, they're talking about how nice this country club is, but yet there's nobody at it who reacts to him doing the quaaludes. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, actually, it's, it's actually an interesting detail that is 
left out. They're Jewish, and this country club is all WASP. It's stated more in the book that they feel like outsiders because they're not really accepted in this country club or in this community. So maybe the people aren't rushing to help because they aren't very sympathetic to their Jewish neighbors. Of all the ethnicities we've seen DiCaprio play, I don't think he played Jewish very well. I think Jonah Hill did. (laughs) Right, and... It's it's even stated specifically that Jonah Hill, I think the one mention towards their religion is that he wears those glasses so that he'll look like a wasp, that they're part of the, quote, tribe, but they try to present themselves. If they're going to be legit in this world, they have to present themselves like waspy everyman. But I'd also think that they'd have more problems with the whoremongering drug addict than the fact that he's Jewish. The fact that he'd come to their country club and have to crawl out seems like a bigger crime than your religion. Yeah, that's definitely more embarrassing. I I agree. But, you know, it it is what it is. If you're going to pick these scenes for these details, you're going to miss all of the the laughs in them. It's, It's not about factual reporting and accuracy. This obviously is not how it looked. It's about making you laugh and keeping you laugh. It is the funniest sequence in the movie. And again, reinforces the only relationship that really matters, Leo and Jonah. We're talking about all these laughs. I think one of the best scene of the film for me was, you know, we get this character, Agent Denham from the FBI. He's introduced early. He's in the background. He's been investigating them. We've seen different government bodies come and audit the firm. But then we finally get this confrontation on the yacht with Agent Denham and Jordan. And I think it's one of the best scenes of the film. And it brings up some of the most interesting questions. You know, we get this funny bribery scene. It does end with a joke. But that that whole confrontation where why is Agent Denim, why is he so straight laced? He's got to sit on this bus where his balls are sweating. And why can't he be corrupted? I think, at least for me, if you want to pick apart Wall Street and, you know, cash in on people's hatred towards Wall Street right now, there's your film. Here's your two characters. And Stuart, I know you said Scorsese likes to focus on one. But here's your two characters. Why is one straight laced? Why is one unbreakable? compared to this total utter bastard that's just willing to rip everyone off. I think because they are such opposites, that face-off between them on the yacht really stood out to me as one of the, as the best scene of the movie. Scorsese says it's his favorite in a recent interview. I kind of think that the agent character is underdeveloped. I agree. I wanted more of them. I couldn't find this as one of the best scenes because I was hoping that they would develop it more. There's a weird scene at the end where the agent is on that, subway car or bus taking his ride home and i think it's a weird scene in the at least in this final edit i wonder if the hour that was cut was some of the agent's counter story because it's like it's not really playing that the straight-laced guy has absolutely nothing and needs his balls to sweat while he takes this public transportation home whereas the illegal guy has all the cars that he can wreck and not care it just didn't play right for me in this film i thought that that could have been, when I credited Scorsese earlier for not going the obvious route, that could have been the obvious route, is showing that honest men have a harder time of it. It's here, it's just not well-developed. I wouldn't count on Scorsese to spend much more time on Kyle Chandler's character. I think that what we see is largely how he's presented. He's straight-laced. For whatever reason that makes him that way, he's the 
uncorruptible force. He's the first time that Leo has bumped up against someone that he can't pay off. And I, I do like that power play. You know, he even equates himself as a Bond villain there. And it does have that James Bond versus, you know, Goldfinger vibe to it here. And Goldfinger loses the fight. And he throws money at the guys as he's leaving and says, these are my fuck coupons or whatever. And Kyle Chandler laughs that he's going to reclaim the boat. Well, Kyle Chandler is going to win the argument. He will get Jordan to go to jail. But I think what that scene on the subway asked is, is it satisfying for him? Is it worth riding that subway that he spent all of this time to put that guy in jail when he could be on his own yacht? And I also think he's questioning. I think maybe he has been tainted by Jordan when he's looking at these pathetic i mean they got the most pathetic poor people to be on this subway and they look like they're starving and you know i think he's wondering would they make those same choices and it would they take the route jordan did if they had that chance i think some of the more powerful the more questioning moments where i want to be engaged as a viewer they don't come in until the very end of this film so much of it is just spent on the black comedy and the laughs I don't feel like I'm really being challenged by the film. I like the movie best, and it's also true of the books, when it's telling me something that I don't know, when it's revealing something. And yeah, these moments are revealing. They're they're interesting. They're informative rather than just being farcical and funny. Funny's fine, but funny is short. If you're going to make a three-hour movie, you need to teach me things. So for me, I think my favorite sequence still is how he sets up the Swiss bank account and all that comes out of that fallout. I've never really understood what that meant. You know, people allege, well, he has a Swiss bank account and they'll do air quotes and wink at you as if we know what that all means. Well, now I do because I read the book and because I've seen this scene, I understand what it is. Basically, how corporate criminals can hide their money and the crazy way in which they have to physically get cash through an airplane into Switzerland. It's So that's all true. They actually yeah. have to smuggle the cash. Well, I, see, I just thought uh, you bank account, you just wire transfer that, right? Yeah, but if you wire transfer it anything over 10000 the I, IRS I'm finds out about I'm not a criminal. About. I don't know this stuff. I just, I'm not a criminal either. But <laughs> Swiss bank account, you just put the money in. I learned that in The Sopranos. Right. I basically understand that, yes, if you really want to protect that cash assets, you have to invisibly move it to Europe. And so, yeah, all of this stuff is true with the ants and her dying and all of that stuff. It was the best stuff in the book. I think it's some of the best stuff here in the movie as well. And I love the French Swiss banker. And for people who haven't seen the movie, the guy who runs the Swiss bank is French. And it's it's Oscar winner Jean Duhardin, the artist. He's got a distinctive smile. He is just your your prototypical comedic Frenchman. I I, he, I just laugh whenever he smiles. But early on in the film, when he's giving the sales training, one thing that Jordan says is, you, you just stop talking, and whoever speaks next loses. And that stuck with me, even on my first watching of this. And so... Many times in this movie, you just see people looking at each other, and it just came back. Whoever speaks next is going to lose. But in this scene with the banker, it's funny because then it's almost like they're having this telepathic conversation. Yeah. What I'm saying, you French dick, is are you going to screw me over? I know perfectly well you're saying you're an American piece of shit. <laughs> Yeah, that's a Scorsese touch. He did something similar in Casino where people are speaking and then there are subtitles to translate what they're really saying in between their words here. He he likes to dramatize the subtext of conversations here. And it, it, yeah, just by looking at each other, uh, he's done a funny bit here by having that telepathic war. 
But again, because he only put 20 million, only 20 million in that bank account, when Emma dies and they have to race to Monaco and go in the storm, which again, another funny scene with the boat and there'll be some chop. Yeah. All of this is true, believe it or not. Uh, no, no you, okay, I could believe that there was some chop. I don't believe there was this much chop. No, they were really rescued by the Italians because their boat sank. There yeah. was no way he called in a rescue plane and a seagull crashed it. It did. That can't, that can, there, it did. According to the book, do you have third party sources? That's what I want. I understand it might be in the book. I want to see the FAA or whoever's <laughs> records saying that that plane crashed. Maybe God hates Jordan. I, I, I think that, that, that it could be divine punishment. If you believe in a God, he might actually be trying to tell this asshole, you know what? You lose this time. But if that's the case, wouldn't he be on the plane? <laughs> yes. Good point. Yeah, he should have been on the plane if he really was going to get punished. I was but maybe thinking this of Titanic. Is all to teach when, him to be a better person, huh? I was thinking of Titanic when he's like got a towel over him in the hold and they're dancing to music. Yeah, all of this stuff. Again, funny stuff. Again, they should be going to a funeral, but all he's thinking about is the money and getting to Switzerland to protect that account. Yeah, I got the feeling that that was like, that was his life savings. If he lost that 20 million. He was in the poorhouse again. That That's the vibe it gets from the urgency he has, even though he's making, well, I'm assuming now much more than $49 million per year. It, it seems weird that there is an urgency over this $20 million. Yeah, he said that he made 49 and I caught that on the second viewing, and again, that was the 90s. He wasn't the richest of the rich. He wasn't a Gordon Gecko. God, he probably no. was mortgaged to the hilt, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think what it is is that he knew that the feds could take everything else that he had. He had more assets, but they could be taken in the in following investigations. But this money was his no matter what. He had it free and clear and tax-free, and that's why it was so important to him. But he also just fights over any amount of money. I mean, keep in mind, the gay butler had a friend that ripped him off. He didn't need that money, but he still dangled the guy over the roof. I mean, he just doesn't lose money easily. Yeah, and I do love how he refers to his good friends who break the law for him and buy stock that Jordan quote-unquote owns because Jordan gave the money, and then they just keep a commission. He calls them all rat holes. Yeah. Uh, he's a repugnant man. It's very clear in the book. I mean, you can go and listen to my thoughts, but I definitely feel like the movie does a better job of translating the charm, whatever he might have, of this character than in the book. At, at his base, if you were to present it without this black comedy, I don't think anybody could watch this movie. Well, at least not for three hours. And they really do in this last bit here. I feel like they do turn it up so that we all turn on him. It comes in that scene where he punches his wife and tries to take his daughter. I really get the sense that we're supposed to be done with him. We want him to go to jail at this point. Yeah, he endangers the life of a child. That's that's the sign. Okay, stop liking this guy. I mean, it, it, it's very obvious when they want you to turn on him in this film. I agree that they probably want you to turn on him in the scene where he punches his wife. But not but you hate her, so you're cheering him on more. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying punch your wife. I am completely against any kind of domestic violence. Totally against it. And so I could see why if that's a shorthand for hate him now. But she is a repugnant person too. So if two repugnant people want to go beat each other up, I just don't like either of them. 
<laughs> uh, you don't hit a woman and you don't do a bunch of cocaine and then take your child out for a drive. Yeah, it's the child that seems even more innocent. I mean, okay, maybe you got these bees with the wife, but what did the daughter do? I mean, truly, thank God he wrecked the car before he could drive away. You, 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 you worry about any amount of time she might spend. It's also worth pointing out when you do your internet research and fact checking, she's out there talking about him too, and it's not flattering stuff. No, I do feel bad for the kids in the situation. The kids are almost non-entities in this film. I realize a couple of times you see her pregnant, a couple of times they talk about a Skyler and things. But when he goes and brings out the daughter, it's the first time it really feels like a real person. I mean, he's so busy with his robbing and his hookers and his blow that I don't think the kids are real to him. Why he'd even fight to keep the kids seems a little bit out of character. He never cared about them before, at least not as shown in the movie. But he does try to keep his kids, and unfortunately, because he's been portrayed as a charismatic character that you want to follow this whole movie, I have a hard time turning on him, and I am not positive that we're supposed to find him that much more repugnant when he's having his final downfall here, because what does he do next? He He's sobered up at this point. Yeah, I do like that line, you want to snort some baby powder later, that Jonah Hill just cannot understand the idea of non-alcoholic beer. It's, he just doesn't get the idea about going clean. See, and I don't, I, I don't know, Artie, I, I get why you might go with Jordan towards the beginning of this film. There, there's a scene, you know, earlier where he's going to give up, he's going to plead to some lesser charges and turn the firm over, and he gives this goodbye speech, but then he's like, you know what? Fuck it. This woman here, I gave her $5,000. I, I feel like, yes, here's this speech. They're trying to get us on his side. I took this poor woman and I gave her $25,000. She only wanted five. I gave her 25 and look how good I am. And it turns into this weird, like tribal cultish dance. I, I, I would hope at that point you're getting the idea that, okay, this guy has charm, but he is Jim Jones. He is, is <laughs> taking everyone down. This is a what business place? You know, I've been in some, meetings where yeah rah rah our company not where we break up on the desk and start dancing and beating our chest that would that would scare me if i worked at a place <laughs> like that that is crazy we're handling <laughs> snakes talking in tongues you know religious yeah. vibe to me yeah shave your head which they already did yeah that yeah. is the scene where i had a flashback to gangs of new york because in gangs of new york we reached that scene where leo is outed to bill the butcher and you're ready for the climax but no, we're going to have a whole political election and we're going to extend this movie. This is the scene where, all right, Jordan's been found out by the SEC. He needs to cut a deal. This is where I'm ready for his end to begin. And I like the character beat that he's caught red handed and yet he's still going to give up middle finger because he's so egotistical. Yeah. And this is false. I mean, it's worth pointing out. He claims that he's going to stand by his company and still be there. He was removed. He was removed in 94, and Jonah Hill took over. Yeah, I just think this was an extra beat, though, the movie didn't need. This is the moment where, like, I feel that it was just going through another chorus again. This was the moment where I had to, to go, uh, how much longer? <laughs> you know, I've never been in a gang. I didn't join a fraternity. <laughs> I think some people would see this as camaraderie. Maybe it's the very thing that I'm saying is missing from this movie. But yeah, it does just look like crazy cult to me. And again, so motivated by self-interest. At the end of the day, Jordan doesn't want to give up the company because he built it, not because he really cares about this single mom that he helped out or all of these people that he's going to yeah eventually put a wire on and betray. Every single person that he's cheering on in this scene, in the last scene, he's sending to jail. But by that same token, he tries to help out Jonah Hill. He has that 
a handwritten note, yeah. don't incriminate yourself, I'm wearing a wire. Right. That note ends up in the hands of the feds, making me think, we never find out, but making me think Jonah Hill took that note and cut his own deal to sell out Jordan. My question is, did Jordan give that to him to give to the feds, or did he t- betray him? No, no, this is just shorthand. If you really want to know, you can read the second book, Catching the Wolf of Wall Street. It's it's far more complicated and ultimately not that good of a payout. They were right to just trim it down to this moment. But there was, as far as I can see, none of that deviousness. The note was caught because basically Jonah Hill is careless, <laughs> as he demonstrates very well in the movie from time and again. Yeah, I just wish we saw that, because I honestly thought it was Jonah turning against him both times. It's never really explained to us how it went. I'm guessing the longer cut would show some more of the shenanigans, but eh, they weren't. Good, good. Leave it on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, agreed. But he does get arrested. The Fed has his victory. And I love the way it's played, about how he's scared to go to prison. Very next scene, he's playing tennis. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this looks tough. This is always what I imagine when when you hear about white-collar criminals going to jail, that it is just like, oh, that just means that you can't actually go into work, but everything else about your life is exactly the same. I do wonder how accurate this is, because what sticks out to me is in that scene in Office Space where they talk about these white-collar country club prisons, and then the guy's like, oh, no, that's totally false. You're going to get pounded in the ass. I do wonder, what is is this exaggerated, or are there actual prisons like this for these white-collar CEOs? And There are actual prisons like this. Minimum security prison is basically, you just aren't allowed to leave the grounds, but you can do pretty much whatever, and if you're rich enough, yeah, I imagine you might be sent to one with a tennis court. In real life, He was in the same prison as Tommy Chong, who was in prison for selling bongs. It was Tommy Chong who said, you should write a book, man. Yeah, it's in the book. If you really want to know about his prison life, he doesn't talk much about it. But there is about eh, a chapter or two devoted to Tommy Chong and being in lockup. What's crazy to me is that this man is out free right now inspiring people. I could buy all of this crazy tale up until the point that I accept the idea that after all of this, people are going to look up to this guy and want to listen to him for hours, tell them how he can make them like him. I mean, after all of this, after all of the betrayal, who would go to that seminar? It does make me wonder about Tony Robbins. What What's his past? <laughs> I have a general bias against any motivational speaker. <laughs> I, I think it's just a weird profession, but some people have more credibility than others. To me, will Jordan have anyone attend his lectures now? I mean, he may have shot himself in the foot by confessing so much and then trying to get out there and saying he's going to do that to you. Here's the thing that, that I find interesting. This is where, again, it's just a few seconds that Scorsese gives us. We get that scene with the agent on the subway kind of looking around. I said, you know, is he wondering if any poor person would actually do this? Because, yeah, there is no nobility or at least, you know, there's no fun in being poor. And then we get this scene in New Zealand. He has to go all the way to New Zealand. I wonder if he's back in the U.S. giving these speeches. I did find it funny he had to go way overseas to do this, at least at first. But – Again, the final shot is just on this crowd. Is Scorsese saying or or is the implication that we all want to buy into this? We all want to get rich quick. We don't really care about the implications. We are all willing to be criminals just like Jordan. And that's the vibe I got. And I think that's a powerful vibe. Again, you're making me think. You're making me question my morality, my values by turning that camera on these poor schmucks in the audience. And I just – I wish – More of the film was about that, turning it around and saying, you know what, motherfuckers, you're all liars, you all want to be Jordan. 
And this is why I, I felt like that was a powerful moment. Those closing scenes there. I agree with everything you said, except with the word all. I don't know that it's for everybody, but I do think it's turning it back into the audience. I think it's the right impulse. It's how he usually ends a lot of these good fellas ended with Henry Hill ratting out his entire gang and then going into witness protection program and talking about how he couldn't get a good plate of spaghetti and kind of regretting the straight life. Here, Jordan's trying to live the straight life and he's trying to basically do what he did again. Are we going to let him? I feel like that was the final takeaway for me is, are you going to let this guy do it? I hope the answer is a definitive and very loud no, but who knows? See, and what I take away from this ending is twofold. First of all, I don't question my own morality. I don't question the morality of those who attend the sales seminars because this guy is a good salesman. The way I thought this scene played, the way I bet Jordan himself thinks the scene plays is he's teaching people how to become car salesmen, real estate salesmen, legitimate salesmen, not teaching them how to manipulate stock frauds and use rat holes to have a IPO that's really your own company. I think it's taking the skills that made him rich illegally and teaching people to use those skills legally to become, well, not as rich, but at least, did you see the losers in that audience? I mean, really, those people probably worked at McDonald's. A joke from the movie, I'm not offending McDonald's people. And I also thought that Scorsese is basically telling us not that Jordan is out there, are we going to let Jordan get rid of it, but again, Jordan's disciples, this movie is so much about the cycle. And even in, when I saw it the second time, I wrote down this quote that McConaughey says, Revolutions, you follow? Name of the game. Keep the clients on the Ferris wheel. The park is open 24 hours, 365. The whole movie is about these revolutions. It's not about Jordan. Screw Jordan. Jordan did his two years and lives a rich life. But what about the people out there doing it now? What about Bernie Madoff and all of those people who are still in the news? They're still doing this. They're still ripping off their clients, either through pyramid schemes, pump and dump schemes, whatever schemes. And why is it we're allowing them to just get less than two years in prison and then live the life of a rock star after that? Yeah, I think that after three hours, we deserve a moment of reflection. I hear it from Jacob. It may not have been enough. He might have wanted a movie of reflection, but it was at least the right note to end this movie on. I think it stops the laughter and has us thinking as credits roll. I'm not sure I agree with that either, though, because I still think you see him at the end on stage mesmerizing people the way he mesmerized people. It's the game goes on. Jordan's still out there. I my moment of reflection was about what the whole movie told me about really the American legal system more than the American stock system. Which, which is squandered into such a small role in this film. That's the problem. It's not about the legal system, unless you're saying, well, the legal system barely makes an appearance in this role, just like it does in real life. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, this movie is not about justice. It may not be uh, about much other than a good laugh. Let's find out. Guys, what do you think of Wolf of Wall Street? Jacob. This movie, it, it didn't offend well i guess a certain sense of my morality whether i recommend or not recommend it's it's not because i was offended by the amount of tits and ass and cocaine and, and just every drug out there at one point jordan like just lists every drug and their value and why they're great that you know that all kind of just washed over me you know at three hours man i never thought i'd say this but i got bored of titties 
Like that, that's how long this dragged for me by the, you know, usually in a film. These you get a titties? Lot of, really, Jacob? Seriously? I I, I, the, what I'm saying is. Naomi's titties? We got Naomi's titties in the third act. Usually that stuff is relegated to the first act. We still got titties in the third act. I was like, man, I am ready to move on. I, I will say, and I know Jordan's already got his paycheck from this. I, I do have problems with that, that he is still cashing in. And according to you, Arnie, he's not even paying back the victims. He's just, he's still living the good life. Not according to me. I, I According to a Forbes article I read. I, yeah. okay. <laughs> Don't get Arnie sued. <laughs> That's called libel. According to the sources you have quoted. Yeah, <laughs> thank <one>? you. <laughs> Because we're more likely to get thrown in prison than Jordan is, just for a little bit of libel. You know, I, I do have a problem with that. But at, at the end of the day, I could really go either way on this film. I'm going to give it a weak, 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 not recommend because of the excessiveness, because of the lack of editing. It just doesn't work for me as a three-hour film. You know, d- despite what I wanted as far as a morality tell, you know, d- should Jordan have been shown in a worse light, or does it glamorize? I think it does. I think all those things. I think it glamorizes the thief. If this is about cycles. Well, we learn why you want to be in the middle of that cycle where you're on top. I, I don't think it ever really shows the downside of those cycles. I don't think it shows the victims enough. But really what this comes down to me, why I'd give it a weak, 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 not recommend. Weak is not recommends is just I don't think the time is worth it. There is too much here. Scorsese needed to cut more. I know this film, I believe it was late already because they were still editing it when it had its, hit its first release date, but it, it needed another round of editing. There, there's just so much here. You know, I talk about having integrity. This film got me to break one of my moral rules of pulling out a cell phone in a movie theater and turning it on to check the time. I did it in this because I was getting bored and I needed to know when things were going to end. Yes, there are lots of laughs. There are lots of pieces. There are moments that I really enjoyed. You know, there's this whole storyline about Steve Madden when they took that public. And guess what? Steve Madden also went to jail. They they didn't show that here. He also got convicted. But there's that great speech Leonardo gives to pump these stockbrokers up about selling Steve Madden stock. I, I, there, there are some great scenes in here. As a three-hour film, I just don't think it gels enough to keep a lot of people interested. I, I just I wanted it to move on. It was too overindulgent for me. I was not enjoying the high at the end of the day. Some people might enjoy the high at the end of the day. I didn't, and that's why it's a week not recommend. Arnie. Steve Madden, by the way. True story. He made those shoes. I remembered those ads, too. He was indicted for being part of this whole fraudulent IPO. He was forced to quit his own company, where he was then immediately hired as an independent consultant, making twice as much. Of course. (laughs) This movie, I said I wanted to see it before I even knew we'd have to as part of this retrospective. I wanted to see it because it looked fun. And I wanted to see it because it was a story about Wall Street, which is something that interests me to this day. The road not taken. You guys questioned my morality in this. I think the answer is I didn't go down that road. I didn't choose the Gordon Gecko life. I don't have the houses and cars and boats because I live an honest life, as boring as that fucking is. Because, as Jordan says, who the fuck wants that? But, do I recommend this movie? This movie, I agree with you completely, Jacob. Way too long. Way too long. They needed to cut another half an hour of this. And it's shocking to me, after the Scorsese-DiCaprio retrospective, I forgot Scorsese can be funny. I didn't expect a comedy. But I forgot one of my favorite films of his, After Hours. Another very funny movie that is just not a vibe I associate with Scorsese. And the thing with comedy is, if you look at 
There's Something About Mary. The DVD for There's Something About Mary shows that that movie started at three hours. They cut an hour out of There's Something About Mary. They cut the parts that weren't funny. And I think this one could have used some more judicious editing. I think that Scorsese may have found a kinship with Jordan Belfont in that both are indulgent motherfuckers who you just can't get to reduce what they want. This movie is overly long. I disagree with Stuart that Jonah Hill turned in a great performance. Jonah Hill was Jonah Hill. And a lot of these characters were just playing versions of the same thing I've seen them play before, mostly in that gang. Shane from The Walking Dead, just playing another kind of thug. And Ethan Supley, just playing another meathead. I mean, there's just so many in here. Rob Reiner playing just another semi-wise old person with a temper. I'm more of the Archie Bunker than the meathead, I guess. But it was a lot of performances I've seen before, including DiCaprio's. I can't say this film is exceedingly well made, nor can I say this film is exceedingly well acted. It's a good film, though, and I was entertained. I laughed my ass off. I didn't check my watch because I don't wear one. I didn't check my phone because it's a smartphone, and that would annoy people around me. Theater was crowded. Didn't want to do that. But I wondered how long was left in this movie several times. So I'm going to recommend it because I think you'll have a good time, but I don't think there's a huge morality lesson here. I don't think... It achieved everything Scorsese would have wanted to achieve going into this. I don't think there is any morality here, and I think it's a little bit weaker for that. But just as a good time watching a movie and a few laughs watching Jonah Hill eat a goldfish, yeah, it's a good time, and I recommend you see it. And for me, it's a solid recommend. I'm the Scorsese fan here. I think he's shown that he's still got it, that he's decades into his career, and he still can make a vital movie. It was great to see him work his magic. And, you know, I don't feel like he does get awfully moralistic with his characters. His career has been about taking lowlifes, thugs, gangsters, and letting them be who they are and allowing his camera trickery to enhance, influence, and yes, to some degree, glamorize what it is that they do. It's classic Scorsese and paired with Leo. It's five for five for me. I've liked this whole series we've done. I think this is a solid one. Not one of my favorites, however. I, I, I gotta say, largely for my own bias about not really liking the character. You know, I think reading those books didn't help. Hearing that Jordan voice in my ear before I saw any of these images. You know, I'm just not entranced by the world. I think if you're lukewarm on Wall Street and finance movies, you'll like the movie, but it is indulgent. What we all agree on is that this movie is too long, and I needed a lot less of it than what they were peddling. But it is a solid, well-made movie, and I think that you're going to laugh, and I think that you're going to be challenged and be shocked by what you laugh at, too. I think that Scorsese and Leo still got it, and you know, yeah, I hope that they can do a couple more uh, before he ends his career. I know that Scorsese has said that he thinks he may only have two more films left, so let's make them count. This is not a bad way to close out a career and i do want to state yeah I, I think this is a well-made film i i think the acting's well i did the way it shot the music all that it, it was just the editing that ended up making me go that way but again your mileage may vary it, it, it all depends on the high you get from this kind of stuff 
The audience next to me, there was old people on my right and young girls on my left. And the old people went, oh, the language. And the young people went, it's just a porno. And I agreed with all of them. It, it, it is exactly <laughs> that. How much it's going to influence you is, yeah, dependent on you individually. But it's a lot of movie. It's a lot of crudity. And you may love it, hate it, or or be solidly in the middle, which is, I think, where I'm at. It's, it's a good film that I probably won't watch a lot of. Long time now playing listeners probably aren't at all shocked to hear me say, did they cuss a lot? I didn't notice. <laughs> Honestly, I did not notice. Wow. Ne- neither did I until I saw that article. I noticed all the tits and drugs. Didn't notice the language. The tits yeah. and okay. drugs didn't bother me so much either. I mean, well, they didn't the- bother me. I'm just saying I noticed them. <laughs> Imagine that. You weren't a shock offended. But. I, I did have to think how uncomfortable it would be to have a 70-year-old man telling a 20-year-old hot naked woman how to pose her body. <laughs> Just something a little pervy about it. But I didn't think this was a porn either. I mean. No, but I still wouldn't want to go with my mom to see this. I'll, I will say that. That would be uncomfortable. You don't like having erections around your mother? No. Well, that too <laughs> is a problem. I just know where she lies with this kind of stuff, and it would be uncomfortable. Well, maybe you can take her to RoboCop. I think that's what's <laughs> up next. We are leaving Scorsese land and continuing to a different area of ultraviolence starting next week. And Jacob, I know you're excited about it. When we did The Shining, Kubrick Shining, I talked about 2001 being one of my favorite films. Well, this... RoboCop. This original RoboCop is right up there, and I cannot wait to talk about it and even talk about the sequels and uh, <laughs> those TV movies. I, they, there's still a charm for them just because of this first film, and I'm curious to see what they're going to do with the reboot here. And I'm excited. I haven't seen RoboCop in a long time, but I'm really looking forward to going back. And I think I may even be kinder to the sequels than you guys are. And Jacob, you and I are going to be back at Books and Nachos looking at some Frank Miller comics again. We are. The Frank Miller RoboCop 2? Yeah, I did read it. Man. Man. (laughs) Man. Okay. You know, even if it goes bad, this is one that I don't mind. Sometimes when I'm on a series, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about those RoboCop sequels, but I do have very fond memories of the first one, and I think that'll be enough to sustain me. However the rest of the franchise goes, I only saw RoboCop and RoboCop 2. I don't know any of the other stuff, but I, I'm excited to take the ride. Why not? It, RoboCop for January into February. Let's do it. I'm glad you're not robophobic. Not at all. Until next time, brother. Thank you for joining us for now playing Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio Retrospective Series. Be sure to visit us at nowplayingpodcast.com each week for a new movie review podcast. The movies discussed in this series are the properties of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with Miramax Films, Intermedia Films, Initial Entertainment Group, Warner Brothers, or any other creative entity involved in these films. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright and trademark 2014, all rights reserved. the future.
isn't he twice nominated? Yeah, it's true. Moneyball as well, which I forgot he was in that. But twice not nominated? What, I, what else besides Moneyball? Well, we're assuming that he's going to get nominated for this one. I don't know if cocaine works that quickly, but I've never done cocaine in a bunch of quaaludes before. When, so, when that <laughs> listener gives us the 10,000 shares, <laughs> then uh, we'll out. find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, my it, word. And is Scorsy... Scorsy. <laughs> I don't question my own morality or the morality of those who go to assist. We know what yours is. We heard it on the <laughs> I know. podcast. I want that pool. I want that car. <laughs> I worked my ass off, goddammit. I deserve that pool, that car, <laughs> that blow. But 